Welcome to the April 24th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is 2 Samuel 19 and 20 and Luke chapter 18. Hopefully, you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. All right, 2 Samuel 19. Uh, yesterday, we read about the death of Absalom, and uh, David was told that his son was dead, and he cried out in grief. Well, as uh, we would expect of someone grieving a child, David didn't merely grieve for an hour or a day. Uh, those who lose a child know that it can take months just to have moments where you feel normal again, but you never, ever truly get over it. But a leader doesn't have the luxury of experiencing the normal grieving process. Um, Those under their authority are dependent upon them to, well, (laughs) lead. So a leader must either get over the grieving relatively quickly and undermine the healing that could and should be a part of the grieving process, or they've got to be able to segment their life and and reserve their grieving for their quiet time when they're alone so that they can lead their people well in public. Unfortunately, David's pain was so intense that it harmed his troops as they were coming back from the battle. He was grieving over his son, but they were needing a leader. And so they should have been celebrating their victory, but their leader's personal grief caused them to act as if they had been defeated. Just listen to how this chapter starts in verses 1 through 4. It says, It was reported to Joab, The king is weeping. He's mourning over Absalom. That day's victory was turned into mourning for all the troops because on that day the troops heard, The king is grieving over his son. So they returned to the city quietly that day like troops come in when they are humiliated after fleeing in battle. But the king covered his face and cried loudly. So this wasn't private. He cried loudly, My son Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Well, Joab had enough. David wasn't leading well and his people were suffering for it. So Joab went to David and had a man-to-man talk with David. Actually, it really appears that Joab had a monologue blasting David and the king just sat there and listened. Joab accused David of loving Absalom more than all his troops. David wasn't grieving for any of his troops that was lost, but he was grieving for his son who had taken his throne. This made no sense. And while what Joab said was truthful, it seems as if it was filled with disrespect for the king as Joab shamed him into doing the right thing. In fact, He said that if he didn't get over his grief and act like the king that his people needed, it would be the breeding ground for even worse troubles. Honestly, while Joab could have expressed more compassion with King David, he was right in his counsel. King David knew it. He's going to regret it later, but King David knew it, and Joab did have the uh, have the day. So uh, we read that what the king com- uh, so we read that actually David did comply with Joab and what Joab told him to do. Listen to verse eight. So the king got up and sat in the city gate, and all the people were told, "Look, the king is sitting in the city gate." 
once again, David is not talking, he's not smiling, he's not He's not leading, he's just sitting in the city gate. He doesn't feel like doing anything more, but Joab has forced his hand. He know that Joe he knows that Joab is probably right, and so he kind of half-heartedly complies. It's it says at the end of verse 8, then they all came into the king's presence. Well, in verses 8 through 10, the people of Israel that had followed Absalom now realized that Absalom had died. So they questioned why David wasn't invited back to be their king once more. Honestly, this seems fickle, but this is sometimes what leadership looks like behind the scenes. People can change on a dime. The crowd celebrated Jesus on Sunday as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and yet on Thursday... Uh, uh, they would, and in fact, actually on Friday, Thursday was the, the Passover, but on Friday, that same crowd, many in that same crowd, were now crying out for him to be crucified only a few short days later. Some of the folks who back a leader the quickest upon his arrival are sometimes those who cause him the most grief later on. And some who mistreat a leader can sometimes surprise a leader with their affirmation of him at a later date when the leader is scratching his head and wondering what is going on. I'm just telling you, people can be fickle, they can change, and leaders oftentimes realize that. And... If a leader was to spend all of his time wondering what people thought about him or what small thing could quickly turn them against him, he'd go nuts. (laughs) Well, Joab had awakened David out of his grief, and so he got to work solidifying his kingship again as the people of Israel were. Even the people of Israel that were celebrating Absalom and pushing David out, now they were welcoming him back. didn't make sense. But David had to go with what was going on at that point. In verses 11 through 13, we learn that he sent word back to Zadok and Abiathar and told them to go to the elders of Judah. You know, hey, the the ground is not, uh, it's not dry now. Uh, It's wet. And so it's time to plow. It's time to work. It's time to get get this thing going. So he sent back to tell them to talk to the elders of Judah and that, uh, He encouraged them to tell the elders of Judah that they were to bring their king back, especially since he was their own flesh and blood. So David is working with what he's got. These people were, they they changed their mind very quickly, very quickly. But hey, he's working with what he's got. Well, then what we see is uh, David told Zadok and Abiathar to talk to someone else. In verse 13, it says this, And tell Amasa, this is David saying this, And tell Amasa, aren't you my flesh and blood? May God punish me and do so severely if you don't become commander of my army from now on instead of Joab. Oh, so David did get upset at Joab. Joab was fiercely loyal to David, but he had killed David's son Absalom. Plus, the way Joab had addressed his king was disrespectful, even shameful. So David replaced Joab with Amasa. And believe it or not, Joab and Amasa actually appear to be cousins. This was a family squabble. I'm telling you the words that Nathan said, hey, you know what? The Lord has forgiven you of this adultery and killing Uriah the Hittite. But Nathan did say the sword will never leave your household. And we are seeing over and over and over, there's just infighting constantly in David's family. 
Well, Judah is ready to receive David back as their king and listen to verses 14 and 15. So he won over all the men of Judah and they unanimously sent word to the king, come back you and all your servants. Then the king returned. When he arrived at the Jordan, Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and escort him across the Jordan. But then David met some folks that had addressed him in some way as he was fleeing fleeing Absalom. He actually meets three. Listen to this. In verses 16 through 23, he met Shimei again. You remember Shimei, don't you? He was the guy that was throwing rocks and dust at David and his men and taunting them as they were fleeing Absalom. Now, Shimei is singing a different tune. He's falling down before David, acknowledging his sin and guilt and pleading for mercy. Um, what changed? Oh, well, the fact that David is now back in charge and can do something about this, that changed. I question the sincerity of Shimei's repentance and confession of sin. I don't think it's because he really knew that what he did was wrong. I just think he's afraid of the consequences. In fact, Joab's brother Abishai asked if Shimei should be put to death for what he did to, the, to King David. I bet that was an earshot of Shimei, but David assured Shimei that he wasn't going to die that day. That day. But David isn't going to forget, and Shimei will eventually be put to death by King Solomon. We're going to read about that later. Some years later. Then in verses 24 through 30, Mephibosheth met the king. Now Shimei, that's over with, now it's Mephibosheth. King David asked him why he hadn't come with him as he fled Jerusalem. Remember um, the, uh, the Ziba, who was Mephibosheth's overseer, but actually his servant, had said that Mephibosheth stayed behind in order to claim what his father, Saul, uh, had lost, Mephibosheth as a descendant was there to reclaim it. At least that's what we're told by Ziba. And Mephibosheth said that it was all a lie, that Ziba had lied about him. He said that he was still a loyal servant of David. He just hadn't been able, because he was lame in his feet, hadn't been able to follow, and Ziba wouldn't help him. Well, David must have believed Mephibosheth, at least to some extent, because we read in verse 29, the king said to him, Mephibosheth, why keep on speaking about these matters of yours? I hereby declare you and Ziba are to divide the land. Previously, David had given all the land to Ziba, but now he took back half to give to Mephibosheth. David wasn't sure who was telling the truth, uh, so it's like, okay, split it in half. I'm done with it. <laughs> then in verses 31 through 39, David met Barzillai. Barzillai was a very wealthy and old man, and he was loyal to King David. He had previously uh, provided for the needs of the king while he stayed in Mahanaim, used his wealth to provide for the king. He remained loyal to him even as he fled from Absalom. So King David encouraged Barzillai to cross over the Jordan so that he could return the favor by providing for him in Jerusalem said, come on over with me. David said this to Barzillai. He was an 80-year-old guy and said, come on over. I will take care of you when we get to Jerusalem. But Barzillai carefully rejected the offer since he was so old and was content to remain in his home until he died. But he sent his servant Chimham to be blessed by David. Verse 39. So all the people crossed the Jordan, and then the king crossed. The king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and Barzillai returned to his home. 
In verses 40 through 43, as the chapter comes to an end, we read of the early evidences of the right that would eventually, of of, of the thing, the fight actually that would eventually split Judah and Israel. The men of Israel came to the king and questioned And the king of Israel came to the king and questioned why only Judah would bring him back to their king. Judah claimed that they did so because the king was a relative of theirs. Yet the people of Israel claimed that they had a bigger right to the king since there were so many more of them, so many more tribes than merely the tribe of Judah. This tension is going to spill over into the next chapter. Second Samuel 20. <clears throat> well, there was an argument between the men of Judah and the men of Israel, and the fire of conflict had started, and all they lacked was some gas. And a man named Sheba threw gas on the fire. Listen to verses 1 and 2 of 2 Samuel 20. It says, now a wicked man. So it's not just a man with, uh, you know, good motives, a man that was unsuspecting, a man that didn't realize what he was doing. No, it doesn't say that. It says a wicked man, a Benjaminite named Sheba, son of Bichri, happened to be there, happened to be where? Well, when the men of Israel and the men of Judah were back and forth, they were struggling with... Israel is upset that Judah claimed David as their king. Judah is saying, we are a relative of King David. You're not a relative of him. And so that's why we have the right to call him our king. Israel says, well, we have more of a right because there are more tribes and there's more people. We have a bigger right to call him our king. And so there is this unresolved conflict and a man speaks into it and throws gas on the fire. He blew the ram's horn and shouted, We have no portion in David, no inheritance in Jesse's son. Each man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan all the way to Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. So Judah and Israel has split. Uh, it's it's going to be reunited again under David, but this is just a foretaste of the eventual split that would create two permanent separate groups um, that we're going to read about after Solomon. It happened after Solomon's reign, but right now this just shows us that there are some rifts that are kind of maybe the fault lines that are under the surface that eventually we we feel them shaking and eventually they're going to create that big chasm that's going to separate the two. So let's get back to this. When all of the arguing started, it seemed that David had a window of opportunity to speak into the situation when the the people of Israel, the men of Israel, the men of Judah, David could have spoken into it. He could have calmed the mood of the room and potentially brought both sides under his leadership. But we aren't told that he said anything. I wonder if he was quiet there at the gate, and now he's being quiet too. He's grieving. He's grieving over his son Absalom. However, even though his silence might be easily explained, it opened the door for someone else to speak. Friends, some of you are in churches where the pastor is alleged to be a dictator. I've I've followed 
uh, pastor or two in the churches that I've pastored where I've heard from people, hey, the previous guy, he was a dictator. Um, but you may find that he was likable and trustable, but, uh, but some folks say that he acted like a control freak. Well, it may be that he, he's just a bully and his power builds his ego, or it may I encourage you to realize that it just might be that he has observed how quickly things can go south when someone in the congregation whose motives may or may not be pure speaks up and leads the congregation in the wrong way, just like what we're seeing in 2 Samuel chapter 20. So in order for that pastor to protect the church he loves, he wants to control everything. And while we may not agree with his actions and the the amount of control, it sometimes helps to understand why some pastors and leaders act like they have to be in control over everything. They know how quickly things can change when someone speaks into the vacuum and others follow. Well, back to the story. Shortly after arriving in Jerusalem, David spoke to his new general. Listen to verses 4 and 5. The king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to me within three days and be here yourself. And so he tells Amasa, the new commander, Joab is no longer the commander, Amasa is. Uh, He said, I want you to go get the men of Israel to come back. Let's talk, and I want you here too in three days. Verse 5, Amasa went to summon Judah, but he took longer than the time allotted him. So he's loyal to the king. It's just taking him longer. Three days wasn't enough time. Um, But three days came and went with no word from Amasa or the men of Judah. So David got edgy. His newly regained kingship was teetering on a razor's edge. So David told Abishai, Joab's brother, uh, to go after Sheba, the one who started the revolt. And then we learn that Joab, David's former general, had not only been replaced by Amasa, but he was actually demoted. He's actually under the leadership of his brother now. In verse 7, it says this, So Joab's men, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the warriors marched out under Abishai's command. Joab is under Abishai, under his brother's command. They left Jerusalem to pursue Sheba. So I would imagine that Joab, once a man of power, has been shamed. He's been fiercely loyal to David, and every move he's made has been intended to advance the cause of his nation and king, and he is shamed and demoted because of it. And so I wonder if he's carrying some animosity within his heart. I wonder... Um, that, uh, you know, as we look at this story, even if we don't know what happens next, I wonder if we could suspect that this is not going to end well. How is Joab going to act when he runs into Amasa, the man who took his place as David's commander? Well, let's read verses 8 through 10. They were at the great stone in Gibeon when Amasa joined them. Joab was wearing his uniform, and over it was a belt around his waist with a sword in its sheath. As he approached, the sword fell out. Joab asked Amasa, Are you well, my brother? Then with his right hand, Joab grabbed Amasa by the beard to kiss him, and Amasa was not on guard against the sword in Joab's hand, and Joab stabbed him in the stomach with it and spilled his intestines out on the ground. Joab did not stab him again, and Amasa died. Honestly, 
This surprises us. Previously, Joab had been a man who actively served his nation and king, and now this act of murder seemed to be solely serving himself. He resented that Amasa had taken his command, so he made him pay for it with his life. Then Joab led the men of Judah to pursue Sheba. When it was discovered that Sheba was in the walled city of Abel, Joab built a siege ramp around the outer wall of the city. And a siege ramp is uh, uh, a wall. Uh, it could be of dirt. It could be just the army itself. It could be any number of things that are is built or that is formed around a city so that no one goes in, no one comes out. And eventually the food, the water, the resources within the city, something is going to run dry and the people are going to die of dehydration. They're going to die of hunger, um, whatever it is. And so that's what a siege ramp was intended for. So a woman, we're told, called out to Joab from the wall asking why he was besieging her city. It was such an important city, she said, in Israel. What had they done? When Joab informed her that it was only Sheba that he wanted, he didn't want to hurt the people in the city, only Sheba, the people of the city cut off Sheba's head and threw it to Joab. Joab's job was done, and he went back to Jerusalem. And when we read the last few verses of 2 Samuel 20, we realize that Joab was said to be the commander of the whole army of Israel. He's actually listed once again as the commander of the whole army of Israel, and we're not sure how this happened. Did David know that Joab killed Amasa? Did Joab even tell him? Did David believe that Joab wasn't someone to be trifled with, and so David was a little nervous around Joab? Or did David think that Joab was uh, had that he, David, had wrongfully replaced Joab and was ready for him to lead his army again? Or was there another option? We just don't know. But one of the things we do know is Joab now once again is the commander of David's army. Luke 18. Okay, so in verses 1 through 8, uh, Luke tells us, he lets us know the purpose of a parable that Jesus is going to tell us in the first eight verses. In verse 1, it says this, Luke says this. Now he told, Jesus told a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. So Luke gives us the theme. He gives us the purpose of this parable, what Jesus was, was uh, saying in this parable. So, the parable Jesus gave was for the purpose of illustrating what it means to be persistent in prayer. But what Jesus does in this parable is to give us a good lesson from a bad example. That's important to note, okay? He gives us a good example from a bad, a good lesson from a bad example. Listen how he begins it in verse 2. There was a judge in a certain town who did not fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So, this is not a good judge. He's a bad judge. He didn't respect the Lord and he didn't care about people. But he was the only judge this widow had, and she pleaded with him to rule in her favor against someone who was doing or had done something illegal against her. We hear the judge say that he isn't willing to rule in her favor because he doesn't care a rip about her. He doesn't care about the Lord and about justice. Yet she wouldn't leave him alone. She kept 
pestering him and wouldn't stop. So he eventually did rule in her favor just to get rid of her. Persistence, Jesus tells us, did the trick. So from a bad example in which persistence worked, Jesus gives this parable and essentially says, essentially says this, since an unjust judge will respond favorably to persistence, how much more do you think your loving Heavenly Father will respond favorably if you persist in passionate prayer? Yeah, if, that's, that's what the parable is. Jesus is saying if you, th- if you can observe how persistence gets what you desire from someone who is wicked, how much more do you think persistence will get something from the Father uh, who loves us deeply? Now, of course, all prayer principles... Can't, they cannot be taken separately. They have to be put together. And so we realize that persistence is not the only thing that, uh, that is uh, important in getting our prayers answered. We have to pray in the will of God. We have to, there has to be no unconfessed sin. I mean, there, there have to be some other things that are, that are present in order for us to expect that God's going to hear and answer our prayer. But the purpose of this parable is to say that of answered prayer, persistence is a big part of it. Don't just pray once and wonder why God hadn't answered your prayer. If it is something that you desperately want, then your passion will cause you to keep spending time in prayer. And the Lord loves persistence because it keeps us coming back. Um, One of the things that Jesus said in verse 8, though, as he finishes up with this parable, is he said, you know, I doubt even that I'm going to find this kind of faith on the earth when I return. Um, And it's it's just, uh, you know, Jesus is questioning whether or not people are going to trust him enough in prayer to get answers to their prayer whenever he comes back. Verses 9 through 14 Jesus told another parable, and Luke explained the parable's purpose in verse 9. Luke says this, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Then Jesus, following this, told a parable about two men who went to the temple to pray. A tax collector was broken before the Lord. He wouldn't raise his head. He beat his chest, and he asked for God's mercy. A Pharisee, On the other side, the second man stood in the presence of the Lord, looked around in disdain at the pitiful sinners, and prayed something like, God, I thank you that I'm not as bad as everybody else. And then Jesus finished the parable by saying, verse 14, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified, the the tax collector that was that was humble and broken before the Lord. This one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be uh, exalted. So Jesus in this parable gives us another prayer principle. If you want your prayers answered, specifically prayers for forgiveness, then be broken before the Lord. Don't stand like a Pharisee, piously thinking so highly of yourself and saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not as bad as everybody else. No, be broken by the tax collector. That's the one that God is attracted to. 
In verses 15 through 17, people were bringing little children to Jesus, and Jesus was perfectly fine with the children coming so that he could bless them. But he also said that the children presented an example of the childlike trust that people must have to enter the kingdom of God. He said, unless you become like one of these children, trusting, trusting a childlike faith, then you cannot be saved. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, then the very next verses in verses 18 through 23, somebody said, well, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I do to get into the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus first off dealt with the fact that he he called him a good teacher, good teacher, Now, this guy probably had no clue that this was Messiah. In fact, it is extremely doubtful that he believed he was the Messiah. So he called him good teacher, which led Jesus, I think, to believe that this guy is just whimsically using the word good, that everybody's good. You're a good teacher. This guy's good. That guy's good. I'm good, too. Everybody's good. And what that meant was he did not feel the weight of sin. And he didn't fully realize that there is none good, no, not one in God's presence. He felt pretty good. He, was, he wouldn't say that he was the Pharisee looking around saying, I'm grateful that I'm not like everybody else. But the fact that he was just thinking that everybody, you know, so many people were good and he was good, no lawbreakers here, um, just led Jesus to believe, and rightfully so, of course, that, uh, that this man did not feel the weight of his sin. He wasn't broken before God over his sinfulness. And that's why Jesus pointed him to the law. He wanted the man to come to the realization that he had broken God's law and was not good. He was a lawbreaker. He wanted the guy to know that. It's only when we get to the place where we feel the weight of our sinfulness that we're prepared to receive the good news of the gospel. As a former pastor of mine used to say, Adrian Rogers, the the good news without the bad news makes the good news no news at all. You know, the good news that God can forgive us, if we don't believe the bad news that we are guilty, then then God forgive me of what? <laughs> you know, but the good news without the bad news makes good news no news at all. But the bad news makes the good news great news. And so in order for us to get to the place where we are to receive the great news of the gospel, we have got to be made aware of the bad news that we are guilty before God's eyes. So Jesus, when he told the man to go sell all of his possessions and come and follow him, Jesus wanted to show the man that he had violated the very first commandment. What's the first commandment in Exodus 20? You shall have no other gods before me. Who was this man's God? His wealth. Jesus wanted this man to feel the weight of the fact that his wealth had such a hold in his life that he was unwilling to get rid of his wealth so that he could come and follow the Lord. Um, And so the man went away sad. And I'm telling you, the fact that the man went away sad was not necessarily a bad thing. We can only hope that his sadness was because he was coming to the realization that his wealth was his God. And we can only hope that the Lord caused that awareness to settle into a deep conviction which drove him back to Jesus, ready for the good news. As the men went away in verses 24 through 30, Jesus said that those who have their needs met with something left over, the rich find it difficult to enter the kingdom 
of heaven. They're simply too comfortable apart from the Lord that they don't feel a need for him. But Jesus makes it clear that those who give up things to follow Jesus will have more than enough to make up for it when they arrive in heaven. In verses 31 through 34, Jesus speaks once again about his upcoming death, but it is concealed and they don't understand it. But this is the third time, the third prediction of his death, third and final. And then uh, verses 35 through 43, as the chapter comes to an end, Jesus is approaching Jericho. Now, um, Jericho, the Jericho that was destroyed by Joshua as the walls came tumbling down, uh, Jericho, the city was, there is a still, there's a Jericho that exists now, um, but it's not exactly on that same site. And so Jericho, it was called Jericho, but it still was, it wasn't on that same location. But as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man carried um, a blind man cried out to Jesus. And even though folks tried to silence him, apparently they didn't think he was worthy of Jesus' time, he cried out even more. And Jesus asked him what he wanted, and he said, Lord, I want to see. So Jesus healed him. But Jesus said in verse 42, your faith has saved you. What did Jesus mean by that? Is this talking about faith healing? Is Jesus saying that faith is the powerful force, the powerful activity that brings on healing? Nope. (laughs) Jesus is saying essentially this. This is what I believe Jesus is saying. Because you are trusting fully in me to heal you, I'm going to heal you. See, it, it, it wasn't faith that healed the man. It was trust in Jesus that caused Jesus to heal the man. So we don't believe in faith healing, which generally means that you've got to have faith to claim what you want. Instead, we believe that the Bible teaches that we we simply need to trust in Jesus to do what he has said that he would do, or do what that he has said that he would do in his word, or if we are believing that the Lord wants to do something in our life or in our church, we are trusting him for it. Faith does not achieve the desired end. Faith is simply trusting in Jesus for Jesus to accomplish it. That's what it means that your faith has saved you. Jesus is not saying that this man had the faith to heal himself. The Bible teaches that nowhere. Jesus is simply saying your faith, your trust in me, has saved you. It has, Jesus said, I am rewarding your trust in me by bringing healing to you. And so Jesus is saying is that faith, that trust is is what saved you, but he's not saying that it itself saved him. What he is saying is that trust in Jesus enabled Jesus to turn back around and say, okay, I will heal you. I just want you to know that uh, that if faith is a work, then then it does not glorify the Lord. Then it does not glorify the Lord. Faith is not a work. Faith is resting. Faith is trusting in Jesus to do the work. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through, what's the word? Faith. And what's the next phrase? And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. What is a gift of God? I believe it's going back to faith. Faith is a gift of God. 
It's not of works, lest anybody should boast. I think that faith is the gift of God. Faith is not a work on our part. It is resting in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he has said. And so whenever we're reading this, I never want you to come to a charismatic conclusion on this because I don't think that that at all is what Jesus is talking about. Faith has no power. Um... If I was to say, you know, I have faith in a, in a chair to hold me up, well, my faith is not going to hold me up. The chair is going to hold me up. What the faith does is enable me to sit in that chair, right? <laughs> so faith really doesn't hold me up. Faith is not powerful. It's just trusting in the chair to hold me. That's what faith in Christ is. It is not, it is not powerful. Faith is not powerful. Faith is simply resting in Jesus who is powerful. I just want us to get that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we believe, but help our unbelief. We trust, but Lord, help us in our inability to trust you more. The Bible, uh, Actually, an old hymn says, Oh, for grace to trust you more. Help us, Lord Jesus, to do that. Help us to realize that this whole thing of, of following you and of obeying you, yes, there are responsibilities on our part. There are things that we should do, but even then, we're relying upon your Holy Spirit to lead us and to empower us and to convict us whenever we go astray off of the path. Lord, the, the, this life of following you is a life of trust and obedience and we're even depending upon you to give us what we need in order to obey lord help us not to have a self-centered theology help us to have a christ-centered theology that everything we do and ev the way we do everything we do glorifies you that nothing we do enables us to pat ourselves on the back so that no one can boast ephesians 2 9 says it's not about us help us lord to get into your word, to find out what you have said, to obey the things that we're to obey, and to trust you for the things that you said are true or the things you will do. Help us, Lord, in this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the 114th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast this year. And I do hope that it's helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.